There's a line in the Sermon on the Mount that I've always kind of struggled with, to be honest with you. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous speeches in all of human history, one of the biggest blocks of teaching that we have from Jesus himself. In that sermon, he sets the moral bar in many areas of life extremely, extremely high to the point where maybe that's got to be part of the point as you read through the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about different uh, behaviors and attitudes and uh, mindsets and all the rest of it. And if you read them and, and you're really honest, some of them are incredibly intimidating. And you probably say, I can't live up to that. I often fall short of that. I don't know if I could ever attain that kind of morality and that kind of living and to live out that kind of love. And in that sermon, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And there's a bunch of problems that I have with that and maybe that you have with that. Some of them I've just mentioned. Be perfect. I'm not perfect. I can't be perfect. I've tried to be perfect and I fall short over and over and over. Theologically, there's some problems with that. And maybe if you've been in church long enough, you've heard uh, certain things emphasized about who you are. Maybe you've heard emphasized that you're a sinner and that you can't do everything right. And maybe even that you could never do everything right because you're a sinner and you're sinful. And then you hear Jesus say, be perfect. Well, I can't. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy. I'm not able. I can't do that. Am I really supposed to follow what Jesus says? Or maybe this is just something that, that, that he's saying. that you know It's just way, way, way too far out there for us to obtain. And then practically speaking, there's a whole bunch of tension points in there that make this difficult too. There's a bunch of people who have, in the recent history, researched a lot about being perfect, trying to be perfect, and perfectionism, and have pointed out all kinds of problems with it. So one of the uh, famous voices on this recently has been Brene Brown. Brene Brown's a professor, a PhD in the States, a prolific author and podcaster, and she studied all kinds of perfectionism, and she breaks it down into a few different categories that maybe some of them will, uh, you'll associate with a little bit. She says there's different kinds like self-oriented perfectionism, which is the belief that I believe that I need to be perfect in order to be accepted. And so I carry around sort of this, this weight that if I'm not perfect, I might not be accepted. And that can lead to uh, things like self-criticism and fear of failure and some real problems with your self-esteem because you're always walking around with, with one set of expectations that you can never actually uh, attain. And so that just is, you're so self-critical and you're always noticing all your problems and all your flaws, and that can be so hard on your self-confidence and your self-esteem. Then there's other-oriented perfectionism, which is when we impose unrealistic expectations and standards on other people, and we expect them to meet those standards. So now, not just do I expect I have to be perfect, but I'm expecting you to be perfect. And when you're not perfect, now we've got a big problem because you're not meeting my expectations, and maybe I'm not meeting your expectations. And so that's hard for our relationships, and there can be these big relational breakdowns and disappointment and a constant cycle of you're supposed to do this, and you're not doing it, and I expect you to do this, and you can't do it. 
and it goes around and round and round. And then there's socially prescribed perfectionism. So this is about perceiving societal, societal expectations and pressures for us to be perfect, which again contribute to our stress and our anxiety and a general sense of inadequacy. I think by now most of us have heard or talked about and discussed the reality that we live in a world where it's not just that we have societal expectations, but now it's kind of heightened because we have things like social media. And so we end up comparing ourselves to others so much. And we are comparing ourselves often to what we know about ourselves and our own shortcomings and our own flaws and, and our own imperfections. And we are comparing to the highlights of other people, the, the curated life that they're showing us by pictures taken from a certain angle with certain lighting that are airbrushed and photoshopped and put together on a highlight reel to, to make it look like there is perfection in somebody else's life. And that could be in all sorts of things. It could be in the kind of vacations that people take, the lifestyles that they have, the jobs that they have, the marriage or the family that they're experiencing, their body. There's all these kinds of things that now we've got societal expectations and comparisons that are just so unrealistic that sometimes look like, hey, and other people are experiencing some form of this perfection. Why am I not? And why can I not? And so we have this idea of being perfect, but theologically and practically and socially in so many ways, this perfectionism can be so damaging for us and for our mental health, for our self-confidence, our self-esteem, for even our moral life, and I would argue uh, our spiritual lives as they're all really integrated. And there's a couple of different ways that people sort of deal with these pressures of feeling like we need to be perfect or close to perfect. One of them is there's a certain group of us, a certain personality that we just try to be perfect. So we're always carrying around the weight and the pressure Whatever we think perfect is, that we need to live up to it, we need to embody it. And if we can't live up to it, maybe we want to project it. So even if I know I'm not perfect, I don't want other people to find out that I failed in certain ways or that I've got certain flaws. And so I'm going to try and make sure that I've got a persona or an outward uh, you know, projection of perfection. Um, and we just try and live up to it. And we carry that burden around, which again, can be uh, anxiety laden. It can be stressful. It can be hard. It can be even crushing. And then some of us, we kind of go the other way. We realize we're never going to be perfect and we can't be perfect. And we so say, what is the use? So we say things like nobody's perfect. And then we use that idea, which is true because nobody's perfect, but we use that idea as almost an excuse. And so we might, we might have things in our lives that we're struggling with. And instead of saying, hey, maybe I can do something about that, we just go, nobody's perfect. And it becomes sort of an excuse to live with certain things in our lives. We've got character flaws. Maybe our, our, we, we have a hard time controlling our anger. And we say, well, nobody's perfect. I got a temper. What are you going to do? Or our marriages are just having, you know, we're having such a hard time and there's so much fighting and there's so many things going on and we don't have the relationship that we wish we had with our spouse. But we say, you know what? Nobody's perfect and no marriage is perfect. And it becomes an excuse not to work on some of those issues or flaws or character problems. And so we sort of have two, uh, two different poles on either side of trying to live up to and carry the burden uh, and then using it on the other side as an excuse for not dealing with anything in our lives because so many of us have just realized that nobody's perfect. But then we come to these points in Scripture where Jesus says, 
Well, now, and Jesus, by the way, right then, he's teaching about how we love people and not just love those people that are lovable, but how we love our enemies. And that's the context around a whole bunch of other moral teaching that he says, now be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. The standard is to be like God in some sense. Well, this whole idea of being perfect is one of the main themes, one of the driving forces in a New Testament book called the uh, Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote uh, to the Colossians, people who live in Colossae. And uh, we want to work through this book over the next number of weeks and uh, want to talk about this idea of what it means that nobody's perfect. And yet, Paul, like Jesus, he says this, and listen to the similarities. This is from Colossians 1 verse 28. He says, So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us, we want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. And there he's talking about the work that he does with churches and to encourage them and to teach them, to tell them about Jesus and how to live in Jesus and follow Jesus. And he says, so that I can present them as perfect in their relationship to Christ. And so you have this moment again where you say, that sounds amazing, except that I know that I am not perfect. And I'm certainly not going to be perfect in my relationship to Christ or my relationship to other people. And so what are we supposed to do with the very real fact that none of us are perfect and then this high standard in Scripture from Jesus and Paul and elsewhere that call us to perfection? How do we deal with that? And that's kind of the theme we're going to look at in this teaching series. Let me read to you a few verses from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9, that set up what we're going to talk about. By the way, this morning, in order to answer some of those questions I just brought up and that tension of perfection and how we uh, should or shouldn't pursue perfection, all we have to do this morning is go through one of the most powerful and dense Christological passages that exists. Sound like fun? This incredible passage that Paul writes about the Christ uh, and what we see in Jesus and the picture that we get there of who God is. And he sets it up with this uh, as he's praying for this group of people, this church that he's checking in with. By the way, it's not a church that he planted himself or that he's ever met at this point that we know of, but he's heard of from others that have gone and done this work. And now he's checking in with them and he's, he's going to address some problems that they have and point them towards some solutions. So he starts by talking about how he's praying for them. He says, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Just want you to notice that wisdom and understanding is a huge theme in what we're going to talk about today and what we're going to see about Christ. And so we mark that and just note it. He wants to give you wisdom and understanding. Then the way you will live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. The imagery there, and this is, this is going to be a big thing in the book of Colossians as well. Some of the themes, there's so many things that Paul's going to write about uh, that allude to things in the history of Israel and that are found in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures. This idea of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light is one that reminds people of the Exodus. And it's says there that he's purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Purchase your freedom. So remember, the Exodus is about the Israelites are being enslaved in Egypt, and they're enduring what that's like. They don't have any freedom, and God comes, and 
He calls Moses to lead the people out of uh, Egypt and into the desert and then into the promised land. And this is what's kind of referred to here as a transfer. You've been bought. Your freedom's been brought from Egypt, now transferred eventually into the promised land, the new kingdom. Out of the kingdom of Egypt, into the kingdom of God that he's promised you, the promise of blessing. Now Paul's picking up on that, but this is kind of a, a new way of taking that imagery and saying you are in bondage. You feel stuck. You feel like you can't move forward. You feel like you can't be perfect. There are things that are holding you back, and so you're not experiencing true freedom spiritually or morally or relationally. But now God has transferred you from that darkness into the light. And he talks about the wisdom that they want to have of how to live in that so that they can bear fruit of that kind of life. You're no longer slaves. And now he's not talking about just Egypt. He's talking about being slaves to sin, the things that hold us back, the things that don't allow us to live as fully mature, holistic people. But God has transferred us into the kingdom of his light. We can come into the new kingdom, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom where uh, God is setting all things right and we're living in the way that he would have us live, which is the way of wisdom. We talk a lot about wisdom today. Wisdom is the way that God has created the world to work. And what we'll see is there's a lot of ways in which we and in the world and different systems and powers have rebelled against that way, have gone a different way and lived a different way. And yet in the Christ, what we see is the wisdom of God that has always been and will always be. And we have a choice whether we reject that or step into that way of wisdom and learn to grow in it. So we come to verse 15, and this is the start of this incredible Christological, that means a study of Christ. We're, we're looking in the, the things of Christ and who he is. This powerful, powerful handful of verses that show us um, an incredible picture of who Jesus is and who God is. So it starts by saying this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Couple of allusions here again. This is so heavy in allusions towards things in the Old Testament. When it says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, this takes us right back to the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis. And this is actually what humanity was created to be. That Genesis 1.26 said that God created uh, man and woman to be the image of God, created them in his image, that they were supposed to be this visible picture of what God was like. So if you want to know what the character of God is, how he is, that that God created in this world, in this universe, human beings that are supposed to, to show what God is like. And now we know that all of us have experienced that we've fallen short of that, that nobody's perfect. And yet here we have this allusion to that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. What we have failed to do, because we are not perfect, Christ has done. What would it look like if God showed up? What is the clear picture of God's character? If God showed up as a human being, what would he do? And what would he say? And how would he would act? We see that most clearly, says Paul, in Christ. And then we have this language around it that reminds us of places like Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating and he's using his voice to create, and you have the Spirit of God hovering, and it's this beautiful, initiative, creative work of God. Places like John chapter 1, there's an echo of this that talks about the Word, and the Word uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and and the Word there is speaking of the wisdom of God, in Greek, the logos. This is how God operates 
operates. This is how God has created the world to be. And so when it says here in the second half of verse 15, he, the Christ, existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And this is really important to understand the rest of these few verses, is that this is now wisdom language. That the Christ, even before Jesus was born, actually way before going all the way back to eternity when we see that, that logos, that word of God in creation, this is us seeing the wisdom of God and we see the wisdom of God embodied in Christ all the way back to the start of the foundations of the universe and also that is what we see embodied in Jesus, the Son. This is God's wisdom. In other words, when we see Christ, we see how the world is supposed to work, how it was all created to work, and we see how humanity was always supposed to be. These, uh, this, this image of God idea was often, often attributed also to the people of Israel and to the Messiah that they looked forward to. And so now what he's saying is what we have seen in Christ is what we were supposed to see in humanity and in Israel and in the Messiah, and that is what we are now seeing in Jesus, is this wisdom of God that has always existed and that he says is supreme over all creation. Okay, so in Christ, to summarize, we see the wisdom or the way that the world works as God has created it. And the statements that he existed before anything was created and that he's supreme speak to two aspects. So two aspects of the wisdom of God. One is that the wisdom of God is older, and so that refers to time before all things. And that the wisdom of God is more authoritative. That speaks to rank. It is more supreme. It is more uh, important. It holds more weight. The wisdom of God is older in terms of time and more authoritative in terms of rank. So the Christ existed before anything and is over everything. And here's why that's important. Because you may have looked at how the world works. You may have looked at your world, your life, the way that you live in it. And you may have say, said things like, oh, the world has always been like that, and it will always be like that. So there might be a whole bunch of things that bother you about maybe the world that you would say something like that. Could be just things like, there's a lot of people around, even in our city, who don't have a home and are struggling with having enough food to eat. And it's always been like that. The rich get richer and other people go without. And it will always be like that. There's nothing we can do about it. You might look at the wars that are raging in the world and it breaks your heart that people are living and dying in those circumstances. And you might say, and it's always been like that. And we're never going to get over it. It's just one war and it leads to another war and another war. And when one dies down, another one pops up. It's always been like that and we're never going to get over it. It's, it's very discouraging to live in that. It's always and we're never. You personally might have statements around that uh, where you say, I I I've always, I've always been a bit of a loser. I've always been a failure. I've always made bad decisions. I always make the same bad decisions. And I'll never, I'll never overcome that character flaw. I'll never get over that addiction. I'll never piece back that relationship. This is how it's always been, of always. And we'll never really have hope for the future. We'll never. And that's what discouragement says to us. It says this is how it's always been. And we'll never be able to change. And when Paul talks about the Christ, 
And then he talks about that the wisdom of God seen in Christ is older and more authoritative. He wants us to hear, not always and not never. And maybe this morning that's something that you need to hear in your discouragement. It's always been this way. We'll never move forward. And Paul says, not always. It's not always been that way. There was a time before that time. There was a time before that happened. There was a time before this thing got broken. There was a time, even if we have to go all the way back to creation, that the wisdom of God created the world in such a way. And if you say, this is how it's always been, not always, because there's older in terms of time, the wisdom of God, ancient, ancient, ancient. And if you say, we'll never get over this because it's just too difficult for us to overcome some of these things, the problems are too big, we'll never overcome. Paul says, not never. Because whatever you think is so much more powerful, Christ is even more powerful. So verse 16, he says, For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed, here's our two things again, before anything else in time, he's older, and he holds all creation together in authority, in rank. All these things were for him and he Wisdom of God in the Christ that we see in Jesus is how all things rightly understood hold together are sustained. That means they work in the world around us. So here's what Paul does. Now he takes those introductory statements from verse 15, and now he lists the power structures that we might bring up. Power structures, they're all around us in this world. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are completely broken. Some of them are kind of helpful. Many of them operate in rebellion to the wisdom of God. That is, they kind of go their own way. So we think of some of these things. What are they? They're financial systems. Some are better than others. But when greed takes over a financial or economic system, whether that's a government, a nation, or even us as individuals and families on our households, when greed and selfishness take over, this is not the wisdom of God. We have a power structure that's now in rebellion to God. It's living in a different way, operating in a different way. We have governments, and some of them are better than others. And we can see that in the world, in some places, there's, um, there, there's dictators, there's power-hungry people, there are places all around the world that, that uh, some people, because of their government system, are certainly pushed way, way down and marginalized, while oftentimes a small group of people are propped up. There are spiritual powers, some good and some bad. We could put in religious leaders and institutions and all the rest of it. Whatever systems, structures that you can think of, there are so many of them. Financial, government, business, there's dictators, there's warlords, all kinds of stuff. Some better than others. But here's Paul's point. Here's why he lists them. Here's why there's a big list. He doesn't just say power structures. He goes into, and thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the seen and the unseen world. And he goes like, I want you to think about this. They're all over the place. And all of them, all of them, all of them, the Christ, the Messiah outruns and outranks all of them. 
So when you get stuck and say, this is the way the world's always been and we will never move forward because even think of all the people, all the things that are in charge, the power structures that exist, the things that we are not going to be able to do anything about. And Paul comes in and says, not always and not never because the Christ has always been the wisdom of God. There is a way that holds everything together in this world and it outruns It is older than any of these power structures and it outranks, he is supreme over all of their power, always and forever. Verse 18 says, and Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over. So you see our two themes again. He's the beginning, older, supreme over, more authoritative, time and rank, over all who, now he says, rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. Verse 18 in this little poem from verses 15 to 20 is a swing verse, because now we're going from the past and what has been all the way back from creation. Now he's going to swing it into the present tense, and he talks about the church, which is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head, which is first, and which is the the supreme, the, the highest rank, and that word head can mean physically head, but it can also mean the source or the first, and it can also mean the one who's in charge, probably means both here in my opinion, of the church, which is his body. That means we live in him. We submit to him. We want to live out the wisdom of the Christ. He is again the beginning, supreme over all, now who rise from the dead. So he is the first. This alludes to the the Jewish conception, and not all Jewish groups believe the same thing around this. Sadducees certainly didn't, but they believe that one day, Uh, All of God's people would rise physically. Those who were dead would rise to new life. And here Paul is saying, and Jesus, what we see through the resurrection, was the first, not the last. So what God has done in Jesus to raise him from the grave, to conquer death, he also wants to do in you. He also wants to do for the world. He is the beginning, the first principle, the source, the creative initiative that we see even in creation. So now we're getting a hint. What we've been talking about in the past that is old and authoritative, the essence of Christ in creation. Now we're talking about in the present for these people and what they have seen in Jesus. Verse 19, it says, incredible. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So get this, for Christ in all his fullness was pleased, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And then it goes down and talks about how all these things, that these broken systems are being reconciled back into God and it's by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And then we see through the resurrection. So N.T. Wright says this about this, these couple of verses. He says, think about this. The worst that sin can do is to kill. Dying, Jesus exhausted its power. That's what that says. Is that not amazing? So here's a system, sin, that's completely in rebellion to the wisdom and the way of God. The worst it can do is kill. And when Jesus died in dying, he exhausted, he went to the full extent of what sin can do and take away from you, your life. And he is the firstborn of 
the, the dead. He comes back to life. He shows this life that will overcome death, which means that system is now outranked. The system that's broken and sinful reminds you that you're imperfect and terrible and awful and can never move forward. And this is how it's always been and it will never get better. Has now been outranked by a new system that's older and more authoritative. The wisdom of God seen in Christ who went into death and conquered it and is the firstborn of the new creation and now wants to offer it to you and me. This is the wisdom of God. In other words, the Christ we see here, who was wholly human, completely human in every way that we're human, filled to the brim with divinity, showing us that the ultimate picture of the invisible God is seen. The best picture is seen through self-sacrificial love in the crucifixion and in a life that overcomes death in the resurrection. That's the wisdom of God. That's the pattern of how this world was created to be. That is how things will work. And you might stop and say, no, 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 because it's always been like this and will never be like this. Not always and not never. Go all the way back to the beginning. This is the wisdom of God who is a loving, sacrificial God who gives life that overcomes death. And in the Christ in Jesus, we now see that. The human one who is the image of the invisible God, now fully human, what humanity was always supposed to be, filled up with divinity, showing us the picture of God who is a self-sacrificial, loving God on the cross, going into death, exhausting sins, abilities, and powers, outrunning them and outranking them in the resurrection. So where you might say, I've always been a loser, a failure, ugly, broken, unworthy. And you might say, I'll never overcome my fears, my shortcomings, my addiction, my anxieties. Perhaps what all of us need to hear, and not just as individuals, but together as a community and for the world, is God to say to us, not always and not never. Ah, but we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. How are we going to do this? We first stop and look at the Christ. Older and more supreme than any other power and any other system and any other ruler and anything that might tell you otherwise. This goes back further and goes stronger than that. Skip down a little bit to verse 27. It says, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. So he's used a lot of language that the Jewish people would have seen as this is, was applied to us. He's now saying, yes, and it also applies to all those who aren't Jewish. It applies to anybody who wants to receive it. And here's the secret. Here's the secret. Here's the encouragement. Say, that's great for the Christ. It's great for Jesus. Then he says, here's the secret. Christ lives in you. The one who outruns and outranks, the one who goes back further, is older and is more supreme. That Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. This is the hope and power. It's Christ in you. And there's our word that we might be presented perfect in our relationship to Christ. And you still might say, I'm struggling. I get it for Christ, but I am not perfect. Beautiful thing about this word, translated from Greek, yes, can mean perfect. It's the idea of something that uh, has gone through a process and arrived at a certain, uh, a certain uh, spot. It's been formed in a certain way. We might, uh, we might say something that has grown up, or maybe my favorite word of translating this here instead of perfect, would be mature. And so you might say, nobody's perfect, but everyone can mature, right? 
See some of you elbowing your spouse. Grow up. You can do it. Nobody's perfect. Oh, I get it. But we want to present you as mature in the wisdom of God and in the way of Christ who outruns and outranks any other power, authority, system that might tell you otherwise. That's how it's always been and we'll never overcome it. Not always, not never. And then you might ask, well, how do we live out that wisdom? How do we even take steps in that kind of formation? How how do we participate in it? It sounds so powerful, so life-giving, so wonderful. And so you got to come back next week and we'll talk more about how we can live that out. Heavenly Father, we see this picture of of Christ Jesus and we are in awe. We want to worship you. We want to say thank you for showing us that even when we lose hope, when we see such power in this world that seems broken or seems dark, when we lose hope that we can move forward, that you've shown us that you've always been working wisely to put this world together and hold this world together. And in Jesus, we see we see the most clear picture of how loving you are and how powerful you are. That you'd be willing to step into our world and to give yourself up for the, the world that you love on the cross. That you would exhaust the power of sin by dying. And that you would conquer the sin of the power of death in living. And that you would offer us the wisdom of crucifixion and resurrection as a pattern for our lives. Would you help us to believe it? And would you help us to live it? In Jesus' name, amen.